0: I'm going to die. I'm going to die historic on the Fury Road.
1: Welcome to the Mad Max minute. Malcolm X once said, you get freedom by letting your enemy know that you'll do anything to get your freedom. Then you'll get it. It's the only way you'll get it. This is Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
0: And I'm Julia.
1: And today we're talking about Minute 116, which begins with the first assistant director PJ Voten, and it ends with the rolling credits for action vehicles with head mechanic slash fabricator Mark McKinley. But as is usual, that is the last that you're going to hear about the end credits because today we are talking about Furiosa and the Wives, the side characters here in Mad Max Fury Road. And I want to begin by asking this is the first time in the Mad Max series that a side character has really eclipsed Max as what could be argued as the main character. Is this a positive precedent to set for the stories going forward? For future Mad Max movies, is Max just going to continue to be taking back seats or should he? Muscle his way forward like he did in the first three.
0: Well, I think I would start by arguing the accuracy of your initial statement.
1: That Furiosa eclipsed Max as the main character of this movie.
0: Yes, but I'm not going to argue it in the way you think. I'm going to argue that she is the secondary character that eclipsed him the most. But since two and three, the groups of people have been doing their own thing and to one degree or another are practicing their own agency and getting themselves to the place that they want to go. Now they need Max's help to do it and he does help either reluctantly or for a deal for how whatever his motivation is he does help but I think as we have gone down the line from two to three to four the group or the character have been becoming more and more independent of Max.
1: Not to speak ill of Mike Preston and Helen Bidet, but is it just that Charlize Theron is so charismatic and so engaging as an actress? Is that why Furiosa stood out so much compared to Papagallo and Savannah Nix and all of the others?
0: I have two answers to that question. One, yes. (laughs) She's Charlize Theron. She is one of the most beautiful women In acting today, she's incredibly talented. She's going to steal the screen, whatever screen she's on. Second answer is that we're looking through the lens and we can't change the lens we're looking through. We're looking through the lens of 2019. We have different standards of what beautiful and compelling and watchable are. I think in their day, Mike Preston and Helen Bidet were charismatic and attractive and watchable and compelling, to a lesser degree. Because I just don't think either of them can compare through any sort of lens to Charlie Theron.
1: I think back to when we were talking about Road Warrior, and when Papagallo wasn't on screen, I wasn't thinking about Papagallo. When Savannah wasn't around, it didn't much matter to me, oh gee, here we are spending half an hour in Bartertown. I wonder what Savannah's off doing. Because sure, I have seen that movie multiple times. I know that she's out there doing something, but I don't care what she's doing. You watch this movie, and when Furiosa isn't on screen, you're invested in what Furiosa is doing. She captures the imagination in a way that none of the other side characters did.
0: I think we might be looking at this question a little bit differently than each other. Okay. I think you are looking at it through the eyes of a viewer, and I'm looking at it through the eyes of the character, as if they were real people. From your point of view, from looking at it as a viewer, which is, I suppose, the correct way to look at it, because that's what we are, viewers, I think eclipse is a strong word. I would say equal.
1: Because there were a lot of people that looked at this movie and said, why is it called Mad Max? Why is Max even in the title? Because this isn't his movie.
0: And I don't really know what to say to those people. I both agree and disagree. We had a discussion with a guest about what this movie is about and what it is not about. And it is about women looking for freedom. And the struggle with that point of view is that we are brought into this group through Max. So we're looking at this story about women through a man's eyes. And we can't change that. But I think George Miller used Max to get us into the story, but then didn't let Max take over the story. And I think that was an excellent handling because he had a story he wanted to tell. He wanted to tell us about Furiosa and the wives and their escape from the Citadel. And could it have been done without Max is a very debatable question that we covered a bit on Monday's Minute. In the end, I can't answer the question.
1: Okay. I think you did touch on something very important, though. The idea of Max coming into a situation and making it his own. Because in Road Warrior, Max arrives at the compound. Papagallo and the people that follow him have their own thing going on with the Lord Humongous. And Max inserts himself and says, okay, I will find you this rig because I know where there's a rig. We're going to make a deal just between the two of us sort of thing, he makes the story about him. When Max is over in Barter Town, Auntie already has this power struggle going on between herself and Master Blaster. And so Max comes in, gets hired as an assassin, and the story then becomes about him figuring out how he's going to kill Master Blaster. And it translates over to Max finding himself with the Waiting Ones, and the story becomes, okay, how is Max going to bring back Savannah and those that left. In Fury Road, Max never gets the chance to make the story about him and how he's going to react to it. And I think that's why a lot of people are saying, well, this isn't Max's story. It's Furiosa's story. And so getting back to my original question, is that a good precedent to set that Max isn't so much coming upon these situations and making them his? Can he just continue to come into these situations and take a back seat to the person who's actually running the show.
0: Frankly, I think plan B is more realistic. People don't walk into situations and get to make it about them. And those people are obnoxious and nobody likes them. Some things get to be about you, and then some things get to be about other people. And sometimes you have nothing to do with that being about other people, and sometimes you get to help it be about other people. So we have seen Max come in and make things about him, and we've transitioned to him helping other people make it about them. And I think we saw the moment where it could have gone either way. After Max had commandeered the war rig, and he is at that moment where he either has to let the women in the rig or sit and wait for the war party to catch up to them. When he lets them in, the way he handles that whole situation, I think could have diverged into him making it all about him. He could have taken control. He could have said, I'm going to drive. We are going to go to this place and we're going to do this thing. Instead, he slid over to the passenger seat. Furiosa got in the driver's seat and she already had a plan in place and she carried out that plan.
1: I think it's also that Furiosa exhibited to Max an ability to match him in ability. Savannah was a leader in the waiting ones, but she didn't have the charisma that Max did to... Figure out that the walking stick was actually a gun and then exert this supernatural looking power. He was able to physically overpower Papagallo. No one before has been able to match Max in ability. Furiosa exhibited in the initial interaction they had that she could match him in both of those areas. And so when he slid over, he was really conceding the reins of the story. There was no way for him to take control there. And I think I'm okay with Max continuing in that way in future movies because it does allow us for more Furiosa-type characters.
0: Yes, and we definitely learned to the greatest extent that we ever have in Fury Road that Max is not the only badass out there. There are other people who are skilled and capable and brave and motivated who can fight for people the way that Max does. He doesn't have to do it all by himself.
1: Now, speaking of other movies, people from the past in this series, we found here in Mad Max Fury Road a group of younger than Max individuals that just seemed to be hangers-on in the situation. And I'm, of course, talking about the wives. They were an accessory to the story that arguably gave the story its driving motivation. We've got to protect these people. Well, this isn't the first time we've seen that in a Mad Max movie. We had the waiting ones and the kids that left the crack in the earth. And you look back on Beyond Thunderdome, you talk to people about it and they're like, oh, Thunderdome was so goofy because of all the kids and they were so annoying. What is the major difference between the kids and the wives?
0: My very first answer is going to be the most superficial. And that's looks. The wives are sexy. They are scantily clad. They are beautiful. They've got boobs and pretty hair. That's the difference. Our society, including us, might I add, isn't the biggest fan of kids. We devalue them and we devalue their opinions.
1: They're good for tax breaks.
0: And they're cute on Facebook. And that's kind of it.
1: But other than that, we want them to go to school and do their homework and be off in their own little worlds, not Shaking things up too much.
0: Right. Until they can be contributing members of society.
1: I'm glad that you worded it that way instead of exploited for their labor. But, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other.
0: That contributing members of society line in the sand is very important because we look at Cheeto. We think she's what, 15, 16 in the movie? Yeah. Well, how old did we think Savannah was? Like, 15, 16. Right. Older than that. Because seriously, she had a child who was way too old. For her to be only 15 or 16. So they definitely overlap in ages. And Slake was like 18 or 19. Easily. Easily.
1: He did not have a child's body. Nope. He had gone through puberty at that point.
0: Thoroughly through puberty. <laughs> That's why He his had name. gone all the way through puberty.
1: That's why his name was Slake Mathurst. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I definitely see where you're coming from. The whole people would rather look at a bunch of attractive literal runway models than a bunch of grimy looking kids dressed up in animal furs and feathers
0: who talk funny
1: they also talk funny although the dag talks pretty funny
0: (laughs) yes she does that brings me to my second point beyond just the aesthetics is the education level again our society devalues people with lower education and it values people with higher education the wives were more highly educated. Then The Waiting Ones, who could barely speak English. Their speech was a big part of why people thought that movie was goofy. Even though it made so much sense. I loved their speech. It just fit in so perfectly with what happened to them and how they have been making do. Then we have The Wives, who are much more well taken care of on the front of food, although the waiting ones were well-fed because they were in the crack in the earth. They were in this oasis, so that wasn't a problem. It's not like they're malnourished, ugly little things. But the wives are clean and well-read, and I'm guessing at least one of them knows how to play the piano, if not all of them.
1: They wouldn't have a grand piano in the sanctuary harem if none of them knew how to play the piano.
0: Yeah, so I think that is the second reason why... The wives are okay, why they are a compelling group that needs help, and the waiting ones are not.
1: Okay. I definitely see where you're coming from, because my big argument, as far as the waiting ones were concerned, was they show plenty of concern for their fellows, and ingenuity, and bravery, and little bits of know-how here and there. I didn't see a lot of differences in the actions taken, by the waiting ones versus the wives. Like, we even lose one of them. You know, we lost Finn McCoo, we lost Eng Herod, you know, same difference? I said with an upward inflection to make it sound like a question.
0: <laughs> I think that is definitely a comparison that can be drawn. And also the issue of procreating. Both of them have procreating issues. And they're very different from each other. The wives have been victims of rape, but two of them are pregnant. And they don't want their children born into this society. It's one motivator for getting out of there. And then the waiting ones have already procreated. Doesn't seem to be a big deal to them. But they want more. Not just for the children of the children. They want more for everybody. They don't seem to differentiate between first generation and second generation. They're just people. Hmm. But they want more. They want something better.
1: Which is an admirable goal to have moving forward. I think the moment that you get satisfied with exactly what you have, you start getting a little bit complacent and then you start getting stagnant. But that's beside the point altogether.
0: Both groups hear stories and rumors in their different ways of something better. The Green Place, the River of Light, Mrs. Walker. Places that look or sound more attractive than the place they are now. One difference between the two is that the waiting ones in their very name are just waiting. Waiting for something to happen. Waiting for someone to come rescue them instead of doing something about it. Which is the transition that a group of waiting ones make. Hmm. The ones who left, they were tired of waiting. So they're going to go grab their destiny by the balls and make it happen, which is what the wives did.
1: I think you bring up a good point. When the Waiting Ones stopped waiting and took their destiny into their own hands, they ceased to be the Waiting Ones and they became the tribe that left. The wives, now that Joe is dead, are no longer the wives. They've become something else, and I'm not sure what to call them.
0: It's funny you bring that up, because I was mulling things over the other day, I think I was listening to You Are Awaited, but they called them the women instead of the wives. Or maybe I heard it somewhere else. I'm not sure. But I heard them referred to as the women instead of the wives. And it occurred to me that why this whole movie have we been calling them the wives? The moment that they ran away, they were no longer wives.
1: It's the wasteland equivalent of serving divorce papers.
0: Yes, they abandon their husband, and are no longer wives. I think both by default, because they left him, and by the emotional label that we take upon ourselves. When I call myself your wife, it's out of pride. I'm happy to be married to you. And I like the sound of, I am Rick's wife. And I like the sound of, you are Julia's husband. But that's because we're happy. Yeah. (laughs) To the women living in the harem, To be called Joe's wife is degrading and is a symbol of their captivity. So I kind of wish I'd had this realization earlier and I would have stopped calling them the wives.
1: Yeah, I really didn't have any other idea of what to refer to them as because they're not specifically Vuvolini. They don't have the experience with that group to absorb their customs and adapt their way of life. So I can't just call them more Vuvulini. They've essentially become something new, something different.
0: Do you consider Furiosa a Vuvulini?
1: Well, she does identify herself as one of the Vuvulini, and she shares their customs like mourning the dead by reaching up into the air and then dragging it to her heart. She has that training, so to speak. And I feel like the women could be one day carriers of that tradition But they would have to consult with Furiosa and Jillian and Melita to learn those things. I could see the Citadel becoming a new fortress for a new generation of Vuvellini. Their numbers were incredibly cut down. First by the fouling of the Green Place and then by the chase back to the Citadel. They lost a lot of people. So I could see Melita and Jillian passing on the tenants that they had as Vuvellini to these young women. But you could argue that there were some things that the Vuvellini did that weren't necessarily healthy for everyone.
0: Right. They are like the exact opposite of Joe.
1: I'd say they were a mirror image more than exact opposite.
0: Yes, they were a mirror image of Joe. And while I'm very comfortable labeling Joe as a tyrant, I'm not as comfortable labeling the Vuvellini as tyrants. Maybe because we really haven't seen their society. Yeah. We know a few things and that's it.
1: The sense that I got about them from all of the things that I read is not so much that they ran things in a tyrannical sort of way. They just ran things in a segregated sort of way. That everything was so divided and their rules were so strict that they adhered to so fanatically that in the end they didn't have the unity to get past the green place becoming foul. They didn't have that structural... ...support in place for everyone to work together because they were so locked off one side versus the other.
0: And I see that as an important part of their culture. Their culture wasn't strong enough to survive Mm -hmm. through the fouling of the Green Place. So I'm not sure that their culture should be taught to the others in the Citadel, not just the women formerly known as the wives... But to the other women who are also there, there's yeah. also the milking mothers. And who knows how many other women serving in other ways. If Joe had a harem, who's to say Rictus didn't have a harem?
1: We were listening to You Are Awaited earlier today, and they were talking to Quentin Kennahan in an interview, and he was talking about how one of the ideas for the movie was that Corpus himself had a wife, that he was gifted a female companion by Joe.
0: That makes so much sense
1: so there is so little time given to the other women that live at the citadel there's so many possibilities of what could happen in the citadel now that the formal power structure has been obliterated and needs to be rebuilt back up from nothing it goes back to what we were talking about with the foxes in the hen house that there's a lot of unknowns and there are a lot of very opinionated individuals, a lot of strong female personalities that are now hanging out at the top of the totem pole, and we're not quite sure how things are going to stack up. On that subject, do you think the wives are properly equipped to hold the Citadel now that they've taken it?
0: No, not even a little bit.
1: Do you see a bright future at all? Or is this just a thing that's going to continue to fail as a new regime comes in to challenge it?
0: I think that they could succeed, but The four former wives, out of those four, I don't think any one of them should be the leader. I think that the Citadel should be run by council. I don't think there should be one leader. I think that they should have representatives from various groups and lead together.
1: I see it very much like the small council in Game of Thrones. That you've got a master of coin and a master of ships and a master of the armies and the hand of the king sort of thing. Where everyone has a job. For instance, Capable is in charge of the war pups. One of the milking mothers is in charge of milk production. The Dag is in charge of growing things. I don't know, put Toast in charge of military or something like that. I think you're putting too many of the
0: former wives into power. Yeah. I don't think they should be in power. What qualifications do they have? What, surviving this whole ordeal?
1: Well, aside from that, they were also educated by Miss Giddy. They spent their days being educated in book learning and music learning and culture and things like that. They're not used to living out in the wasteland, but they have marketable skills.
0: But I don't think they should all be in power. That's not a balance of power. They should be represented, and I think that they should have jobs. The DAG can work on the green spaces without having a definitive role in the running of the whole place. I just don't think it's a good idea to put these four women who have been treated in one similar way in power. I think we need a variety. Corpus Colossus should be on the council. A milking mother should be on the council. If there are any war pups who are old enough to to have an adult-like point of view, there needs to be a war pup on the council. Or a war boy who was too sick to fight, there needs to be representation from all the groups.
1: So you think that the wives going out on the Fury Road with Furiosa and being part of the team that killed the old guard, that they get back and they should be excluded from the new society that was taken by them from the old guy?
0: Okay, two things. No, I don't think they should be excluded. I think one of them should be on the council and then the other ones, because you're right, they are smart and capable. And then the other ones have jobs to do, but I think one of them should be on the council to represent their faction, their category of Mm -hmm. people. My second point is from game of Thrones. What's his face Baratheon was the one who waged war against the Targaryens and who took over
1: Robert. Yeah. Robert.
0: Yeah. And he did it very well. And So because he was the one who actually did the fighting, he took the throne and he was rubbish at it.
1: All right. I want to argue he may have been a fat drunk who was not the most gallant of knights. But at the end of Robert's rebellion, he started at least a decade and a half of peace on the continent. Yeah, they were heavily in debt because he kept throwing lavish parties, but that's because...
0: Because he was a bad
1: ruler! But there was peace in the region. As soon as Robert Baratheon died and Cersei's children started taking over, the entire world of Westeros was plunged into war that lasted all the way through to the end of the show, with, some would argue, not a happy ending. <laughs>
0: My point is that just because you do the work doesn't mean you're the best person to lead in the end. It's a very different kind of leadership. We have not once talked about Furiosa taking over. She's the one who like really did all the work to bring down the regime. She's the one that dealt the death blow to Joe, but we have never considered her for leading the Citadel now.
1: That goes back to the question of, does Furiosa even survive past the end of the movie? We see her go up the elevator, but she still has not one, but two puncture wounds in her abdomen. She's got some sort of strange blood transfusion from a fairy princess that who knows what that's going to do to her body. Does Furiosa even want to run the place?
0: Well, for sure she doesn't want to run it. I mean, do the wives even want to run it? Of course Toast would want to run it. Yeah. But... I mean, do the wise even want to put their names in for either a position of ultimate leadership or a position on the council? Do they even want that? I would argue no, except for toast.
1: Yeah, it's rough because there's a lot of unknowns and I don't think that we're ever going to get a definitive answer. We get a definitive answer at the end of Road Warrior. Because the voiceover's like, oh, in time, I became the chief of the great northern tribe. By the way, I'm the Pharaoh kid. Hey. And then at the end of Beyond Thunderdome, we get to see Savannah surrounded by all of these people. And she's there as the master storyteller telling them about all of this stuff that they do. And we know that there's a definitive end. Despite Max being able to see the end of the road in this movie, we don't get to see the end of the road in this movie.
0: Yeah, for once, we're... In Max's shoes at the end of the movie. We have no information that he does not have, which is an unusual place for us, and it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm.
1: Which is why we're just going back and forth with this whole idea of (laughs) council versus dictatorship.
0: I don't think we have ever debated an ending so much as this one. Does that make it a good ending? I don't think that makes it a good ending. I think it is a good ending, but I also thought the other movies ended well, too. So, all of these unknowns about how things are going to move into the future i think that is on the pro list for the type of ending as opposed to the con list but i don't think it has to be
1: so that pretty much brings us to the end of today's episode we're going to put a pin in our conversation so we can come back on friday we are going to be rounding out the week with a focus on the citadel but We're done talking about the future of the Citadel. It's time to talk about the past, namely Immortan Joe, Nux, the War Boys, the Sons, all of them. It's time to talk about bad guys when we come back on Friday. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
0: The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
1: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies by Daniel Bautista of DanielBautista.com.
0: Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
1: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our tea Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full.
0: Thank you for joining us for Minute 116 of Fury Road. See you next time.